Boker Tov, a Frilicha Lichtige Hanukkah. Hope everyone is having a wonderful, wonderful Hanukkah thus far, an inspired Hanukkah. Just an announcement, uh, Rabbi Moskowitz's usual class that he gives on Sefer Daniel this morning, he's doing about Maus Tzur, about Hanukkah. It's a phenomenal topic, dissecting and analyzing the song that we're singing each of these nights that unfortunately many people don't even appreciate what they're saying. So I strongly encourage you to uh, stay afterwards. And uh, those who are listening to this online, look for Rabbi Moskowitz's talk online and listen to it as well. This week we have the privilege of studying Parshas Miketz. And to continue the wonderful story that we have been following all along. We last left Yosef sitting in prison, languishing in jail. Yosef's miserable, horrible, tortured, difficult life has only gotten worse. Just when he thought it couldn't get any worse. He's falsely accused... He's sitting in prison, and frankly, he has every right, he has every reason to wallow in his own sorrow, to feel sad for himself, to retreat to the corner of the prison cell, and not think about or care about anyone else. But is that what Yosef does? No. At the end of last week's parasha, Yosef is sitting in prison with the Sarofim and the Saratabachim, with the wine pourer and with the baker and Yosef looks and he sees that they are depressed and despondent so Yosef says what's, what's the matter? what's the matter? you know we say uh, anyone know what day of the Jewish calendar that was? did we mention this last week? I don't remember we did mention it or we didn't? you don't remember either so that means I can mention it again okay it's good that was the day of Rosh Hashanah. We actually say this in Tehillim. I did mention it. Okay, good. I'm glad you're all following. It was the day of Rosh Hashanah. Yosef created a new beginning for himself simply by feeling sympathy and empathy for others. The opportunity we create new beginnings for ourselves not by only concerning ourselves with our happiness and our needs, but when we show awareness and consideration for others, that brings new opportunities for us. And in fact, Yosef's life takes the turn. When does Yosef's life begin the trajectory upwards of improving? When he shows that care and consideration for those in the prison cell. He would have been entirely entitled. He would have been entirely understandable for Yosef to only care about himself at that moment. But he shows that concern and he begins through that to turn his life around. Which brings us into our parsha. Paro, right? All these parshios, there's so much going on about, about dreams. Are dreams uh, weighty? Do we care about dreams? Do we not care about dreams? Dreams are a fascinating conversation. Chazal, there's Dapim and Mesachas Brachos that deal with this and elsewhere, and Chazal essentially took the approach that what you dream is a reflection of what you ate late at night before you went to sleep. Right? Chazal essentially took the approach that what you dream is a reflection of what you were thinking about while you were awake, or your subconscious fears, anxieties, worries, hopes, aspirations, and so on. Right? Dreams, the Gemara uses a lashon lamala v'lomorid. Halachically have no implication. For example, there's an entire Gemara that talks about, or there's a tshuva based on a Gemara, that talks about a person has a dream. In their dream, somebody reveals to them that there is a treasure which is buried in your backyard. So they now come to your house, they knock on your door, they ask permission to dig in your backyard, and lo and behold, they discover that treasure. Who owns, who owns what was discovered? The Bala Chalomos, the person who had the dream, without which you never would have found the treasure, or the individual owns the property in which the treasure is found. 
And we conclude that is the Lashon of the Gemara. The dreams have no substance, no significance in Halacha. Shkoyach, you dreamt it. I'm glad you dreamt it, but it's my property. It's on my property. It belongs to me. So there's a fascinating discussion about dreams. So here Paro has a dream. And he is, in fact, Paro has two dreams. And we're all well aware. He has the dream of the seven fat cows and the seven thin cows. And he has the dream of the sheaves of wheat. And he awakens and he can't solve his, uh, and he can't solve his dreams. So what happens? He contacts all of his uh, people. Nobody can resolve. Nobody can resolve the dream. We've spoken about in the past. You could listen online. That what differentiated Yosef's approach from theirs. They too were able to dissect the dream and suggest that it's something to do with the impending economic cycle. What was the difference between the way they interpreted the dream and the way Yosef did? They too diagnosed the problem. There's going to be a downturn. The economy is going to collapse. It's not going to sustain itself at these levels. The bubble is going to burst. But what's the difference between the way they interpreted it and the way Yosef interpreted it? Yosef not only diagnosed a problem, but he offered, he suggested a solution. And Paro was much more inclined. Paro felt... His is much more is much truer. Problems, I always say this. People, it's easy to diagnose problems. I could tell you everything wrong with our shul, with the community, with the Jewish people, with the state of Israel, with the United States, with the world. Anyone could tell you everything that's wrong. Diagnosing problems, that's easy. But coming with a suggestion of a solution, having a proposal about how to fix it, that's much harder. So that is what gives Paro an affinity. It draws Paro to Yosef. Because Yosef doesn't just interpret the dream to diagnose a problem, but Yosef, in contrast to the Khartoum and Mitzrayim, Yosef comes with a solution. Meanwhile, Paro is dissatisfied. Paro is not getting answers anywhere. So, the Saramashkim, who had survived, says the Saramashkim, look, at the risk of reminding you that I once failed you and you threw me in prison, I have to tell you that when I was in that prison, there was a man. And he was able to interpret a nar even ivri. Nar ivri ever the saratabachim. Rashi points out that while the saramashkin was doing a favor for Yosef, he couldn't help. This is like a precursor to anti Semitism. Right? He couldn't help. Even when he needed the Jew, he couldn't help but denigrate him. He's a nar, which Rashi says, shaita vein roy le gedula. He's an ivri, a filu lashono eno makir. He's an evid. So even when the Saramashkim is speaking in Yosef's favor, it's really a utilitarian purpose. He needs Yosef's skill set. But he doesn't want to bolster Yosef. That lowly Jew, he wishes he remained in prison, despite the good that Yosef had done for him. So even when he has the opportunity to invoke Yosef's skill, which will help Paro, he can't help but denigrate the Jew. He's a nar, he's a shaita, says the Saramashim. He's a fool, he's an idiot. He's not worthy of greatness. And he's an ivory. He's strange, he's peculiar, he speaks some language that's totally unfamiliar. And he's an avid. He's not worthy of dressing and of your own audience with, with you, the Great One. So even when he's willing to mention Yosef, he can't help but, but put him down. They of, course, they of course retrieve Yosef from the boar, he shaves, he changes his clothing, and they bring him to 
Paro. And this is the moment in Yosef's life. Yosef has this unbelievable moment. And what does Yosef do with this moment? I'll tell you what I would have done. I'll tell you what I would have done. If I had this unbelievable conflict with my brothers, we spoke about last week, they stripped me naked, they threw me in a pit, they planned to kill me, then their great mercy, they threw me in a pit with snakes and scorpions. And then their further great mercy, they take me out of this pit naked and covered and disheveled and, and having, having to fend off snakes and scorpions, and they sell me to a band of, of Arab merchants passing by, and now I'm in Egypt. And I'm falsely accused, and I'm sitting in prison languishing, and it's my big moment. I'm summoned in front of Paro. And Paro says, No, I understand you have a certain skill set. I understand you have a talent which could be very useful for me. Tell me, is that true? What would you answer? Yes. Right? If you are a, um, a thoughtful person just thinking about your future, what would you answer? I would say, Absolutely, sir. Reporting for duty. I would love a position in your cabinet. I have what to offer you. What does Yosef say? Will I die? What are you talking? Me? Who? Me? I, I don't have any talent. I don't have any inherent skill. It's not me. Me? Oh, I'm sorry. Did you have the impression that I have some talent or skill? It's not me. Oh, no, it's God. God's the one who can interpret your dream and if I'm fortunate he will allow me to communicate that to you now power doesn't flinch right so you see Yosef's humility you see Yosef a pillar of faith of strength he's not opportunistic in that moment the right thing at least in our world would have been to promote himself but he doesn't Bill Adai does the opposite of promote himself. He doesn't even say, yeah, you know, I'm very fortunate. God speaks to me and I'm able. It's God, but you know, I'm the one who's, I'm the only one. He says, Bill Adai, nothing to do with me. It's unbelievable. It's extraordinary. Paro doesn't flinch. Uh, he's, uh, your skill, his skill, I don't care. Here's my dream. I need it interpreted. And what does Yosef say after? And by the way, this is not for now, but contrast the way Paro reports the dream with the way the Torah recorded the dream. And you will note significant differences, and those differences are very instructive. So Yosef hears Paro and he says, Chalom Paro Echadu. Paro, you think you had two dreams, but there's really one theme. Right? That also attracted Paro. The other Khartoumim were coming up with all kinds of highfalutin interpretation. Yosef simplifies. There's something very special about simplifying, reducing things with simplicity. He says, Paro, you think you had two dreams, it's really one dream. And you know what the essence of your dream is? Your two dreams are really one message. And you know what the message is? God, through these dreams, is telling you what's going to happen. And then he interprets the dream. Fat years, thin years, and the fat years save for the thin years. Right? He's the first, uh, he's the, the great economist. Yosef could learn a lot from him. And how does he end? And the fact that you had the dream twice. This is really what God's going to do. And God's going to do it quickly. He's bringing it to quickly. And how does Paro react? Wow. This is a special man. He's blown away. He loves the interpretation. But all the more so. On page 228. Paro concludes the conversation with Yosef. He turns to his avadim and he says, Hanimtza kaze isha sheruach elokimbo? Psh! 
Have you ever met such a spiritual person? Wow. I got this guy out of jail because I heard he interprets dreams. I heard he's the head of the Psychic Friends Network. I just want him to read my palm. I just want him to tell me my horoscope. I just want him to interpret my dream. And in the end, I just got a religion lesson. He's unbelievably spiritual. Have you ever met someone so spiritual? And what does Paro say? This is unbelievable. After God has revealed all of this to you, there is no one who is wise as you. I need you to be, I need you to be in charge of my house. What does Yosef achieve? Yosef achieves two goals. He achieves two goals. Most of us would have set out to achieve one, which is get out of prison, get into the cabinet, get an office in the palace, and have your future bright. But that wasn't Yosef's primary goal. His primary goal was to make a Kiddush Hashem. Last week's parasha, Rashi quotes Chazal, who say, Shem Shamayim Shkura Befiv. Yosef, the name of God is dripping off of his lips. Yosef is like the first seminary girl. Baruch Hashem, Amir Hashem, Be'ezr Hashem, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem. Everything he says, Mirz Hashem, Baruch Hashem, Be'ezrus Hashem, thank God if it pleases God, if God allows. And through that, Yosef, in a very subtle, non-coercive, without indoctrinating, Yosef is an amazing force of Kiruv. Yosef's doing outreach, not by standing on a soapbox, and not by standing in front of a room and preaching directly, but by having conversation about the economy and dreams, but inserting God, God this, God that, if God allows, with God's help, God is sending a message, trust God. And what's the result? Yosef achieves two things. Paro all of a sudden becomes from. <laughs> Paro converts. Right? Paro, who is the leader of, this is a man who relieves himself at the Nile, because, right? The Paro historically, that's the later Paro, but even this Paro, if he sees himself as a deity, and now all of a sudden, this power was saying, Wow, God's really revealed this to you. You are Ruach Elokimbo. You're a man of God. Paro buys into this God thing. Now Paro is using the language of, Thank God, if it pleases God, Amir Tzashem, Be'ezr Tzashem, Amir Tzashem, Baruch Hashem. So Yosef achieves greatness. He rises to a position of greatness. And he turns Paro around. And there's a powerful, powerful lesson in this, but it's not our topic for today. Okay, so he places Yosef on top. Yosef then meets a wife, we mentioned last week, who is his wife? Asnas Bas Potifera Koinom. Yosef We talked about how awkward that dinner table must be. Yosef's mother-in-law is the woman who falsely accused him and threw him in jail and spent all of the years of his working in her home trying to seduce him. That's unusual and awkward relationship. Yosef is 30 years old. He's 30 when he stands before Paro and he rises to this greatness and he implements his plan. In the fat years, the economy's thriving. Everyone else is buying fancy cars and homes and yachts and planes. And Yosef, with his discipline, is saving because he knows those fat years can't continue. Yosef and his wife, Asnas, have two sons. The oldest is Menashe, Kinashani Elokim Eskol Amali, Beskol Beisavi, and the second is Ephraim, Kifrani Elokim Be'eretz Ani. He calls the first one Menashe because God has made me forget all of my hardship 
and all of my father's household. And the second one he calls Ephraim, God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. We've spoken about this also in the past. I don't want to dwell on it now. But all I'll tell you is that name Menashe is very interesting. Why does he name him Menashe? Ki nashani elokim es God has made me forget all my hardship and he's made me forget my father's home. Let me ask you a question. If you name your son, my, I have forgotten all of my hardship and my father's home. Have you really forgotten your hardship and your father's home? Every time you call him, Menashe, come for dinner. Menashe, did you do your homework? Menashe, do you want to have a catch? Menashe, let's learn Torah. Not in that order. Every time you talk to Menashe, you're saying, Menashe, I've forgotten my father's home and all of my hardship. That's his name. One thing I can tell you is the likelihood is you've not forgotten if you're calling him that name. So what's the deeper meaning of that name? Again, we've studied that in the past. And even with Ephraim, by the time he names his younger son, it's Kiefrani Elokim Be'eretz Anyi. God has made me successful in the land of my suffering. Even the second son, he says, you know, it's still the land of his suffering. Clearly it's part of his consciousness. Clearly he's living with it Every single day. The years of plenty are over. The years of famine kick in. The people are hungry. And included in those people who are hungry are living up in Canaan. Yosef's father, Yaakov, and his brothers. They get hungry. They're provisions. They send them down to Egypt. The brothers bow to Yosef. Yosef recognizes them. But they don't recognize Yosef. Yosef remembers his dreams. And he turns to them and he says, You're spies. You've come to spy, to investigate the land. You've come to cross me. And Yosef holds them. Last year we spoke about, again, you can listen online. Why did Yosef antagonize? Why did Yosef cause his brothers to suffer? Why didn't Yosef, if he's ultimately ready to forgive and forget, if ultimately he was ready to reconcile, why didn't he begin by saying, Hey guys, it's me. I still bear a grudge, but let's talk it out. You're hungry, I don't want dad to die of famine. What's the whole, this parsha, the beginning of next week's parsha? What's with the whole, you know, leaving Shimon behind, then you have to bring Binyamin and falsely accusing Binyamin and stuffing the money in the sack. What is going on with this whole thing? We talked about that last year, but it has to do with, he remembered his dreams. He remembered his dreams. And somehow he is trying to fulfill what he thought God had prophetically revealed to him about what was supposed to happen. But much more, what is he trying to do? First by holding back Shimon, and then by threatening to hold back Binyamin. What is he doing? The Rambam says, Tshuva Gemura, and Hilchah Tshuva, the Rambam writes, Tshuva Gemura, complete and absolute Tshuva, is to be in the exact same circumstance, and this time not repeat the error of your ways. To be in the same position, but this time not do the mistake you had done. So what Yosef is really doing here is Yosef is orchestrating the same circumstance where the brothers had failed him to see if they've learned the lesson. In the past, they left him all alone. They sold out a brother. Would they do that again? When they say, you need to leave someone here, are they prepared to sell out a brother? When he says you need to leave Binyamin and they falsely accuse him, are they ready again to abandon a brother? Or have they learned what brotherhood is? Have they learned what it means to be a family? Have they learned about loyalty and devotion and dedication? Yosef is scripting a, a stage 
in order to test the brothers. Have they achieved tshuva gemura? Have they grown or not? So he stands his ground that they are um, spies and he tells them the only way I can tell is if you leave someone here and go retrieve your youngest brother and bring him back. The brothers go back and Yaakov says, no way, no way. I've already lost Yosef. I'm not losing Benjamin. No way. Are you guys crazy? And that's the section we're going to go through more in depth in a moment. But even Yaakov ultimately caves when the famine becomes severe again. He sends them back down with Binyamin. Yosef sees Binyamin and he's very moved by it. He invites all of them for a meal. He plants things in the goblet in the backpack. He tests Binyamin. He, he uh, challenges, he um, accuses Binyamin of stealing from him and says, that's it. Binyamin is staying here. And Yehuda approaches Yosef to speak to him at the end of the parsha, and it's a cliffhanger. It's a cliffhanger. We pick it up next week with Vayigash. We don't know what's going to happen. Here the brothers have promised their father Yaakov. First Ruvain tries to promise him. Yaakov doesn't buy it. Then Yehuda promises him, and Yaakov reluctantly says, fine, take Binyamin. And now the one thing they promised their father would never happen. There was no way they would come back without Binyamin. Now Yosef is ready to take Binyamin. And what are the brothers going to do? What's going to happen? As if none of you know. What is going to happen? That is the cliffhanger that brings us to next week. Okay, so I want to start Perak Membez. Yeah. Perak Membez. Chapter 42. Pasuk, let's start with. Lamed Vav. Perak Membez, Pasuk Lamed Vav. Chapter 42, verse 36. It's on page 238 in the Art Scroll Stone it's, I know it seems like a peculiar place to begin, but it is a juncture within the storyline which allows us to investigate here. We, where are we? We are when the brothers come back to uh, Yaakov. They've left Shimon behind. They come back to Yaakov. They find that the money they thought they had paid the provision for the provisions had been put back into their backpacks. And now they're really worried. Because now the money they had paid with is still in their pocket. Which means they're going to be accused. So they're very worried. So Yaakov, their father, says, Yaakov says, I'm the one who's bereaved. Yosef's gone. And Shimon's gone. And now you want to take Binyamin? This is all on me. Are you crazy? I've lost my Yosef. And now Shimon's gone. And now you want to compound it and take Binyamin? Alai hayu chulana. This whole thing falls on me. This whole thing falls on me. What did he mean? This whole thing falls on me. Says the Svarno. Alai hayu chulana. Ein echad me'elu amikram be'echami b'neichem avakulam b'bnei. Hey guys, you haven't lost your children. I know these are your brothers. Yosef was your brother. Shimon's your brother. Benjamin's your brother. But these are my children. And you cannot compare a relationship of siblings to a relationship of parents to children. For a parent to lose a child is, is profoundly painful. It's difficult to lose a sibling. But for a parent to lose a child? So Yaakov says, You haven't lost children. Yosef was my son. Shimon's my son. Benjamin is my son. This is all on me. 
זה בלי ספק אינו, כי אם בסיבס מרבוסכם זה עם זה. ואתם, המשכיל מוסי, says the Sforno, Yaakov begins to be suspicious. See, Yaakov, and we see this here in the Sforno, we see it in Rashi in a moment, Yaakov is not a fool. Yes, Yaakov showed favor to Yosef and he's criticized for it. But Yaakov is also well aware of the conflict, the tension that exists among his children. And now he says, you think I'm an idiot? Yosef's gone. Now Shimon's gone. Now you want to take Benjamin. I know you boys don't get along. You don't think I hear you fighting? You don't think I hear your jealousy? You don't think I see the lack of peace in the way you function? Right? Last week's Russia. That... Um, you guys can't even be in a room together. You don't even say hello to one another. And this is the result of it. You're not being able to say hello to one another has cost me my children. Your fighting has the gravest consequences. Yosef and Anu, he's gone. And Ruben and Anu, and Shimon and Anu, Shimon's gone. And now you're fighting. Now Binyamin you want to take from me? Says this Farno. Rashi has the same impression. Osi shikaltem. That word shikaltem is a funny word. Article translates shikaltem as <clears throat> uh, I am the one who you bereaved. Bereaved. But Rashi writes, Malamed shachashton shem ki Yosef. Yaakov begins to be suspicious. Maybe Shimon's not dead. They come back and say Shimon. Sorry, they come back and say Shimon is imprisoned by this wicked viceroy in Egypt who totally mistreated and falsely accused us. And Yaakov says, "Really? You guys came back selling me a story once before. You showed me a bloody coat, and you tried to sell me a story once before. You sure that's what happened to Shimon? Maybe you killed him. Maybe you sold him." Chashtan, Yaakov begins to get suspicious of his own boys. He sees the tension, he sees the conflict. He's aware they can't even be in a room. Afilu l'shalom. They can't even say shalom aleichem to one another. And now he's choshed them. Now he begins to grow suspicious. So how does Ruvain react? Vayomer Ruvain el aviv lemor. Now the boys know that they can't go back and get Shimon unless they bring Binyamin. They are desperate. They're desperate. Because the fact is that they did, they did um, <clears throat> do tshuva. They did repent. And they want to correct their ways. And they want to go show loyalty to their brother Shimon. So Reuven tries to step up. And Reuven says something which backfires. Reuven says to his father, I'm telling you that we're going to bring him back. And if I can't successfully bring him back, then kill my own sons. Put it in my hands and I'll bring him back to you. And I'll bring him back to you. Was that a wise thing to say? Look what Rashi says. Rashi says, Pasuk Lamaches. Well, Yaakov reacts. Uh, Reuven, my boy, that was not the most compelling argument you could have advanced. His brother, whose brother? Binyamin's brother died. He is the only one remaining. From whom? From Rachel. Something will certainly happen to him along the way. That you're going to walk. I'm done then. 
Forget it. So no, you're not taking Binyamin, period, end of sentence. Says Rashi, why did Yaakov respond this way to Ruvain? Lo kibel dvarav shal Ruvain, Amar, b'chor, shotahuzeh. I'm raising a stupid son. What is the matter with my boy? My oldest son has no brain. Who omer lahamiz banav, v'chi banav heim v'lo banai? What is the matter with my son? He thought the argument of why I would let Binyamin go with him is because if he didn't bring Binyamin back, then I could kill his children in revenge. As if his children aren't my grandchildren. What is the matter with him? Now, I, I could never have said those words. But Chazal, Rashi is quoting the Medrash. Rashi is quoting the Medrash and Bresh's Rabbah. Chazal said that Yaakov says to himself, what's the matter with my oldest son? What kind of an argument is that? Now, you understand a little bit the argument he was making, and the Ramban really points this out. Why did Yaakov resist? Because Yaakov said, Alai Hayu Chulana, which the Sforno meant, said meant, Alai, that this loss is all on me. Meaning, the loss of a child to a parent is categorically different than the loss of siblings. So Reuven was trying to respond to that and say, let me do this. Because I'm telling you, not you can kill my children, of course, of course he doesn't think his father's going to kill his own children. But what he meant is, the loss will be as great to me as if I lost my own children. As if these were my own children. Reuven is trying to correspond with Yaakov's, or respond to Yaakov's hesitation. Right? He accepted himself with a curse that he would bring Shimon back successfully. In other words, the punishment should be on me, not on you. You've suffered enough. You've suffered the loss of children. If I can't get it done, the promise I'm making you is, let the loss be on me instead of on you. Of course he wasn't proposing that, that Yaakov kill his own sons. So Yaakov rejects or rebuffs Ruvain's argument. Why, why might he have not trusted Reuven? When in a moment we're going to see that he trusts Yehuda. In a moment we're going to see he trusts Yehuda. What's the difference? Oh, oh, so let's keep going for a moment. Let's keep going. So what happens? Yaakov says, no, my son's not going. He's the only one left from that mother. The route, the, the route that you take from Shechem down to Mitzrayim is a dangerous route. And how do I know it's a dangerous route? Because that's where Yosef disappeared from. I sent Yosef to check on you in Shechem. And he's gone. That's a dangerous neighborhood. So certainly something's going to happen to Binyamin. And the answer is no. I'm not sending him. We covered this in the Amuna Shir, the five-part series we did a few months ago. Where's Yaakov's Amuna? Where's Yaakov's Amuna? If Yaakov believes in God, then God can make Binyamin die if he stays home, and God can make Binyamin live if he goes on the way. Why is Yaakov hesitant to allow Binyamin to go? Because something will certainly happen to him along the way. Where's Yaakov's Amuna? Remember we talked about the Orachayim HaKadosh last week? About whether free will trumps even divine providence? Why did the brothers put him in the pit? Because Ruvain understood that there's a better chance in the pit because in the pit, the snakes and scorpions, God will determine what they do. But up here at ground level, 
the brothers I can't control because their free will trumps even what God wants to have happen. That A can kill B even when God doesn't think B's time has arrived. Well, that, that, was, the, that was the controversial position of the Orchayim HaKadosh that everyone else disagrees with and says, no, divine providence, God's plan trumps free will. That was the discussion last week. But here, there are um, many commentators who get into this question, Yaakov says, don't let him go. You have to be careful. You can't do foolish things. But where's Yaakov's Emunah? Why didn't he trust? Okay, I'll let Binyamin go. If it's Binyamin's time, then Binyamin can drop dead right here, next to me. If it's not Binyamin's time, then Hashem will keep him alive, even if he goes down there. Where's Yaakov, the man of great Emunah, where is his Emunah with, with Binyamin? But anyway, he tells them, absolutely not, there is no way, there is no chance, I'm not sending him. The, um, the Sforno says, Lo yirid li ikar Ouch for Leah. But says the Sforno, Lo yirid bini, my son. Lo yirid bini, my son, Binyamin. Meaning, he is my only son left from that mother, and that mother was the Ikar Habayas. That mother was my main, she was the pillar of my home. She was the foundation of my home. And I have nothing left from her. I lost Yosef already. She's gone. She up and died on me on the way. And now Yosef's gone. And you're going to take Binyamin and I'll have no remnant left from the foundation, from my first love, my true love. No way. It's not happening. You're not taking Binyamin. You're not taking Binyamin. The Yorachayim has a comment here also. It says the Yorachayim, Perish Bala says, Tam, Eichu chash asfeiko shal binyamin, Mevadao shal shimon ha'asa b'mishmar mitzrayim b'iravon. What is Yaakov thinking? You know, Yaakov wants to protect binyamin, but who is he sacrificing in the process? Shimon. So says the Yorachayim, what's Yaakov thinking? We have a principle in Allahcha that you have a Shema and a Bari. What's Adif? Bari Zadif. A Shema means a uh, possibility, and a Bari means a definite. In the conflict between a possibility and a definite, the definite wins. So it's a Bari. It's with certainty that Shimon is in Egypt. And I'm not going to get him back unless I send Binyamin. So unless I send Binyamin, I've definitely lost Shimon. On the other hand, if I send Binyamin, maybe he'll come back. So using the rules of game theory, using strategy, Yaakov should have said, you know, I do love Binyamin, but I also have a son, Shimon. Imagine how Shimon feels. Dad says, there's no way, he's not even going to risk losing Binyamin. Uh, hello? Risk losing Binyamin? I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm definite. I'm a goner. You don't think that's a risk worth taking to get us both back? Because otherwise I'm a definite goner. So what's Yaakov thinking? Binyamin is a suffix. Shimon is a Vadai. Binyamin is a Shema. And Shimon is a Bari. So says the Yorachayim HaKadosh, And that's what Yaakov was saying. You know what? I love Shimon. He's got five brothers from the same mother. There's more where he came from. 
right? I love Shimon. Okay, there's more where he came from. But there's only one Binyamin. He's the last one left from that mother. Who Levadonishar? It's pretty rough. I, I'm not suggesting trying this at home, but <laughs> it's pretty rough. The old suffix says suffix muhrahu. Says the Archaim a second reason. If you look at the Pasuk, it doesn't say, Yaakov doesn't say, there's no way I'm sending Binyamin because maybe something will happen to him along the way. What does he say? Definitely something will happen. I'm not sending him there. That is a road. He will definitely be kidnapped, hijacked, sold, attacked. So says the Rechaim, those are the two reasons why Yaakov, even though the calculation should have led to the conclusion to risk Binyamin in order to get back Shimon, but Yaakov said, no, Shimon I can afford to lose. There's five, he's one of five brothers from that mother. Okay, sad, I'd mourn, it's tragic. There's more where he came from. Binyamin is the only one? No. And the second reason is, he was certain that Binyamin would, would be gone. At least at that moment he was. Perak Mem Gimel Pasagav. We continue. Ve'ara'av kaved ba'aretz. Now the famine got really bad in the land. Ve'hika shakilu la'acholos ha'shever ha'shereviyum ha'mitzrayim. Ve'yom ha'alem ha'vim shivu shivu lo'namata ochel. They had finished the provisions that they had received from Yosef the first time they went down to Egypt. So Yaakov turns to him and says, we're dying, we're starving here. We have nothing to eat. We're going to die. You need to go back down in order to get. Yehuda steps up and he says, We can't go back down. The man testified to us saying, he does not want to see our faces unless the brother is with us. If you're willing now to relinquish, if you're willing now to allow Binyamin to come, we'll go get food. But if you're not sending Binyamin, I'm not going. We're not going. Because the man said, I don't want to see your face unless your brother is with you. Unless your brother is with you. And what happens? Is that a good argument? Says, what's he called here, by the way? So remember we mentioned last week, you go through Sefer Bereshus, you have to always ask yourself, why does the text sometimes refer to him as Yaakov, and why other times as Yisrael? Yaakov is the particular name of the individual, and Yisrael is his name as the father of a nation, the patriarch, the progenitor. So why here all of a sudden do we invoke Vayomer Yisrael, not Yaakov, but Yisrael. But what does Yaakov say? Why do you want to make me suffer? Why did you tell him you have another brother? What is the matter with you boys? Why would you have revealed that fact? It was totally and utterly, utterly unnecessary. You know, they, they, good lawyers, if they're preparing you for a deposition, they'll say to you... Um, I'll say to you, Leo, what time is it? And if you answer, it's 10.12. I'm sorry, do you know what time it is? And if you answer, it's 10.12, they teach you that's a mistake. What was the right answer to that question? Yes. Yes. Never answer more than what's asked of you. Right? So Yaakov turns to his boys and he says, what's the matter with you? Weren't you prepared for this? You went down. Why did you volunteer information? 
Why would you possibly have said that you have another brother? Why want to cause me pain? Why are you doing something so terrible? Because he asked all about our upbringing and our background. Is your father still alive? Do you have a brother? So we had to answer based on his questions. Did we know that because we volunteered the information or because we answered his questions, then he would turn to us and tell us we have to bring down our brother? So Yehuda says, Send the boy with me and I will bring him back. We will live and we won't die. We and you and our children will all do it. I got it covered. I'll be his guarantor. And what does Yaakov say? Take him. Okay. Yaakov is convinced and he allows Binyamin to go. So what was different about the way Yehuda asked than the way Reuven asked? So go back to Rashi and Pasuk Beis. They finished the provisions. This was Yehuda's strategy. When Yaakov rebuffed Reuven's request, and when the first time they said, give us Binyamin, we've got to go back down, Yaakov said no. But Yehuda bought time. Yehuda, Amar Laham, Yehuda said to his brothers, Hintinu Let's just wait for the old man. Right now, he's got the luxury because there's food in the house. So right now, Yaakov has the luxury of saying, no, you're not taking Binyamin. But when we're all going to die, and he will lose Binyamin anyway, because we're all going to die because we have nothing to eat, now the calculation is different. Now Yaakov will let him go. So first, the circumstances were different. Yehuda had bought time once they finished. It was time at Shimon's expense. Right? Shimon is waiting every day. Where are they? Why aren't they coming back? I guess I'm dispensable like Yosef was, right? Shimon's sitting in a prison wondering whether they're coming back for him. But all that time, Yehuda's buying time because Yaakov no longer has the luxury of saying no because not only would he then lose Binyamin, they're all going to die unless he goes down. So that is A, number one. Number two, what's another difference between Yehuda and Reuven? It was suggested earlier before. Yehuda knew what it was to lose children. We read in last week's parsha in the uh, section which was injected in the middle of the storyline, the story of Yehuda and Tamar. Erva Onon, Yehuda had lost his sons. That was what led to the story with Tamar, his daughter-in-law. Yehuda knew what it was to bury sons. Remember Yaakov's apprehension? He says... A lie. This whole thing has been... I'm the only one who stands to lose children here, guys. I lost Yosef. And now I've lost Shimon. And I'm the one who could lose Binyamin. No way. I'm the parent losing children here. I'm the one paying the price. You don't know what that is. You don't know what that means. So when Ruvain says, let me do it, he says, no, you have no idea what it means to lose a child. But here Yehuda knew what it meant to lose children. So when Yehuda says, it's on me, a lie, it's on me, now... Yaakov is more likely to respond. And there's a third difference. The third difference. What's the relationship of Yaakov to Reuven different than it is to... different than it is to... Uh, to Yehuda? We never got to this last week. 
I wanted to. Where did Ruvain go? Remember Ruvain um, disappears, right? They're going to kill Yaakov, they're going to kill Yosef, and they decide instead, Ruvain says, to throw him in a pit, and then they sell him, and Ruvain gets back, and he looks in the pit, and he says, where's Yosef? Because Ruvain had intended all along of coming back and, and rescuing him. Where was he? Bathroom break, time out. Well, where, where, what was he doing? Checking his email. Oh, moving the furniture. You remember the story? From the text, it sounds like Ruvain does something even more egregious. But Chazal fill in. He had taken the bed out of... He says, it's bad enough. Okay, Rachel died. So you're not... His mother is Leah. Ruvain's mother is Leah. It was bad enough when you had to split time with my mother with that other woman, her co-wife, Rachel. But now she's gone. And now you're splitting time. You're taking time away from being with my mother to be in the tent of that other woman's maidservant. So Ruvain moved the bed, remember? And this was a great affront. This was a great act of chutzpah to his father Yaakov. To his father Yaakov. In fact, Rabbi Soloveitchik suggests that that's why when Ruvain gets back, last week's Parsha, Ruvain wants to rescue Yosef because he wants to make it up to Yaakov. Because Ruvain is trying to prove to Yaakov some loyalty after he had been unloyal. So Yaakov has that baggage with Ruvain. Right? So when Ruvain says, Dad, it's on me, I'll bring back Benjamin, Yaakov says, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> son, thanks, son, but I'm not sure where your loyalties lie. You already insulted me once by moving the bed and not trusting me and making tension with me and thanks, but no thanks. Whereas with Yehuda, Yaakov never had that conflict. Yaakov had pure trust with Yehuda and that never rose. There's something interesting about the wording here. <clears throat> they keep referring to the man. Ish. The Ish. The man said. The man told us. The man said, I don't want to see your face unless you bring back. What's this reference to this Ish? To this Ish. So listen to this comment of Rabbi Salavechik. In the Rabbi Salavechik Chumash. Says Rabbi Salavechik. Listen to this. There's a fascinating parallel found in the three parshios of Vayishlach, Vayeshev, and Miketz. All refer to an Ish, a mysterious individual. In Vayishlach, we encounter the Ish who wrestles with Yaakov. In Vayeshev, as Yosef searches for his brothers, he meets an Ish who tells him where his brothers can be found. And finally, now in Miketz, Yosef himself becomes the mysterious Ish who confronts his brothers on their arrival in Egypt. Right, so we have three successive parshios that each make reference to this ambiguous, generic ish. Listen to what the Rav writes. I'm not giving any editorial or social comment. Just listen to what the Rav writes. There's an important contrast between the ish with whom Yaakov fights in Vayishlach and the ish of Vayeshev and Miketz. Yaakov knew his enemy, the ministering angel of Esav, and the reason for his brother's hostility. Yaakov stood accused of a double crime, taking the Bechorah, the special right of the firstborn, and the Brachos, his father's blessings, and he had to face his adversary. When one knows his enemy, it is possible to plot a strategy. In Vayeshev and Miketz, the Ish was unknown to those whom he appeared. When an Ish is unknown, the result is fear. Is he a friend or a foe? What does he want? So says the Rav, you have to know your enemy 
And then you can fight your enemy. You have to name your enemy. If your aim, the enemy is generic and ambiguous and you refuse to name the enemy, you can't fight the enemy. So the Ish in, Vayesha, the ish in Vayishlach was Saro Shalasav. Yaakov knew who he was up against, so Yaakov was prepared to fight. And Yaakov was in fact triumphant. Whereas in Vayeshev and Miketz, this Ish is generic. Is he a friend? Is he a foe? Who exactly is he? What is his motive? How should we approach him? The Ish whom Yosef encountered is strange and foreboding. Why does the Torah reveal the encounter? And what did Yosef hear about the brother's location? Had this Ish not appeared, Yosef might have simply gone back home. And he would not have been sold into slavery. Clearly it was all part of God's plan. Similarly, in Pasha's Miketz, why should this powerful and frightening Ish ask them all sorts of personal questions about their father and brother? It was all part of the divine plan, paving the way for the coming of Mashiach. So, I thought that was a fascinating insight of Rabbi Soloveitchik. Moreover, Yaakov, Yaakov says to the brothers, in the, in the form of Yisrael, right? Not just Yaakov, here the Torah calls him Yisrael. Lama hareosem li. What is the word hareosem? How does the article translate this? Lama hareosem. Why do you treat me so ill? What's the root of the word hareosem? Ra. Why are you doing this ra? What's the matter with you boys? How did I raise you? Why did you volunteer information about your brother? Why did you put us into that position? Lama hareosem. What's the matter with you? The Medrash, Rashi doesn't quote this Medrash, but the Medrash, Barishas Rabbah, Tzadi Aleph Yud, says, In his entire life, Yaakov never said something useless, foolish, unnecessary, except for this. Amar Kosh Baruch Hu, Ani Oseik Lahamlechez Benobim Mitzrayim, Vuhu Omer, I'm busy manipulating things so that his son will not only be alive, but will rise to greatness. And he's busy asking, why would you do this evil to me? So the Medrash is critical for Yaakov for saying this. How could Yaakov say, Why would you do this evil and wickedness to me? Kosh Baruch Hu says, this is the only thing in Yaakov's entire life. It's a Dover Shabbatola. It was a foolish thing to say because God says, I'm behind the curtain. I'm behind the scenes pulling the strings to put your son as the viceroy of Egypt and you're busy saying, why would you do this wickedness to me? So the Chavetz Chaim asks, the Chavetz Chaim asks, what did you expect from Yaakov? Should Yaakov have been happy? Oh, Shimon's in prison, great. And they want Binyamin to take I'm sure Hashem has a plan. Really? The Medrash Chazal are critical of Yaakov for in that moment of great uncertainty, compounding the pain that he had already suffered, for being suspicious or hesitating for a moment. Really? They're critical of Yaakov for saying, What did you expect Yaakov to say? What did you expect him to say? So the Chavetz Chaim says a very powerful answer. Says the Chavetz Chaim, sometimes we have to swallow bitter pills in life. And we don't know why we have to swallow those bitter pills in life. They may be bitter, and they may be painful, and they may be hard, but they're not ra. They're not bad. 
Because God does not do bad things. Whatever happens to us in life might be painful, but it's not bad, says the Chafetz Chaim. We found with Yosef, you know, Yosef later, when he reveals himself to the brothers, next week's parsha, he says, Atem chashavtem alai ra'a, Elohim chashava You intended on doing ra'a to me, but God always had a plan. And it turned out to be tova. It turned out to be good. I've mentioned this also recently. I don't remember what context, so forgive me if I'm repeating it here. But we had a speaker, I don't know, eight or ten years ago from England, a rabbi from England, who had lost his wife at a very young age to cancer and left him with four or five children. And I vividly remember in his speech, the thesis, the main point of his talk was that God does painful things to good people. God does not do bad things to good people. Right? He went on to describe all of the positive that came out of this horrific experience of losing his wife. He says, give me the choice again and I would never want my wife to be taken. I would give anything in the world to have her here now. It was unbearably painful. But bad, uh, painful things happen to good people. Not bad things happen to good people. And that, right, I could never have said that. But here's a man who had experienced something beyond painful and he stood up there and said, painful things happen to good people. Bad things do not happen to good people. And that's what the Chavetz Chaim answers. Yaakov is criticized for saying, because Yaakov should have said, this is painful, not this is bad. He didn't yet know how it would turn out. And if you truly trust in God, then you reserve judgment. Because God always has a master plan. And that's why the Rambam quotes, the Mishnah and Bracho says, we always have to bless the bad, the same way we bless the good. So the Rambam in his commentary on the Mishnahis, there in Bracho says, says, The same way when you have good news, you sense that it's good, even when it's something appears ra'a, you have to make a bracha. Even when we say the words Dayana Emes, what we're saying is, God, I don't understand why this painful thing has to happen, but I trust in you. I have faith in you. There is a bigger plan. There is a master plan. You are in control. You are in charge. So while this is painful and unwelcomed, I refuse to call it bad. Because only you can determine what is good and what is bad. This is the great Rabbi Akiva used to say, Kol David Rachmana. Rabbi Akiva used to go around saying, whatever God does is for the good. Nacham Ish Gamzu, used to always say, why was, his nickname was Nacham Ish Gamzu? Everything was Gamzu Latova. This feels painful, but Gamzu Latova. This please God should also somehow turn out, turn out for the good. So the Chavetz Chaim answers, that's why the Medrash Chazal are critical. Yaakov says, Why in the world would you do it bad for me? And he should have said, Why would you do something painful to me? Not why would you do something bad? Because you have to reserve judgment. Only a Kodesh Baruch Hu, only the Rebona Shalom can determine if something is good or if something is bad. What do they mean? They make the argument to Yaakov and they say, Yehuda makes the argument. We will live and we won't die. It's redundant. If you don't die, you're living. If you're living, you obviously didn't die. So why is it repetitive? Nechyeh velo namus. What's going on here? Rashi's bothered by it. 
And says Rashi, so not die means physically. You won't die from starvation and the famine. But not only will you not die, says Yehuda, if I can get back Shimon, with Ruach HaKodesh, with Ruach HaKodesh, Yehuda in that moment saw that not only would Binyamin come back, and not only would Shimon come back, but let me go, and who else can I bring back? Yosef. And then dad, then Abba, then Tati, I don't know what they called uh, Yaakov, <laughs> then Nechyeh, then you will surely come back alive, spiritually. So Nechyeh v'lonamus, not only lonamus, not only will we not die physically through famine, but Nechyeh, you let me go, through Ruach HaKodesh, Yehuda understood that he would also bring back Yosef. Says the Sfarno, Nechyeh b'mazon, we will live with the capacity to eat. And if you let us take Binyamin, A, we'll live because we'll get food, and B, we won't die, he won't kill us because he asked us to bring Binyamin, and we will in fact bring Binyamin. And lastly, the Orachayim HaKadosh says, Nechyeh v'lonamus, perish nechyeh chayim balot sa'ar, v'omra v'lonamus, Hopefully, Nechyeh will live without pain, but Velonamus, minimally, will have food to eat. Listen, I can't promise you what will happen with Binyamin, what happens with Shimon, but all I know is if we don't do this, then we're all going to die. So, Nechyeh, but minimally, Lonamus. Hopefully, we'll live and we'll bring everybody back. But minimally, Lonamus, at least we'll get some food. Some of us will not die, because if I don't do this, then surely we are all destined to die. Surely we are all goners. There's a lot more, as always, to uh, talk about, but we'll have to stop here today. I encourage you to remain. Please remember Rabbi Moskowitz, a phenomenal class that will transform the remainder of your Hanukkah, a class on Ma'oz Tour.